Well, grab your Bibles, if you will. We'll begin the book of Joshua today. We are obviously back in a true and better series, and our aim throughout this series is really twofold. Um, Two goals behind this teaching series. One is to raise the bar of biblical literacy uh, among our church, among our people. We want, I want you to know your Bible, to, to know the scriptures. Uh, and then secondly, to show you that all the Bible is pointing us to Christ, to our great rescuer, redeemer. All of it is pointing to him, as we just saw in that video. Uh, what essentially I want to help us do is to give you Christ-centered glasses that when you pick up the Bible, you put those glasses on and wherever you open the book, you're able to see how this is pointing you to Jesus. So with that in mind, open your Bible to the book of Joshua. What I want to do before we stand and read together is just walk us through the narrative a little bit. Let me tell you who Joshua is. Uh, Joshua, his Hebrew name is Yehoshua, which uh, sounds a lot like the Hebrew name for Jesus, which is Yeshua, the Aramaic. Joshua and Jesus, both in Greek, are Yesu. They have the same name. And ironically, Joshua means the Lord saves or Jehovah saves. And if you remember in Matthew 1, 21, when the angel was telling Mary what to name Jesus, she said, you're to name him Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. So Joshua is uh, the representative, the commander uh, of God's people to save them, right? And Jesus is the ultimate savior of God's people. Joshua is a type of Christ. We've seen this a number of times through the scriptures and Joshua is a type of Christ. Not only is he a great leader in history, but he points us to Jesus, the ultimate uh, commander of the Lord's army. Joshua is a shadow or a type of the true and better Yeshua, the conquering leader who will bring utter destruction on all his enemies as he brings his people into their ultimate promised rest. So we're going to see that story unfold in Joshua historically, and then we're going to see how it points us to a really a future reality we are still hoping for. Moses, if you remember, had delivered the people of God from slavery, from Egypt, from bondage. And Joshua is a different kind of deliverer. He's a deliverer who's delivering God's people to their rest, to the promised land, to victory. Well, Jesus is actually typified in both, isn't he? So Jesus is the great deliverer who delivers us from our sin, our slavery to sin, and the deliverer who delivers us to victory and rest and the promise of eternal life with him. We are forgiven in Christ. Amen? And we are free in Christ. Christian, you are not just saved from hell, from sin, from evil. You are saved to the promised rest of Jesus, to powerful victory over sin and evil. You are saved to purposeful service in God's kingdom and in his mission. Salvation is not the finish line. It's the starting blocks. 
The people of Israel were miraculously freed from Egypt through a series of mighty displays of God's power. Remember the ten plagues that God worked? And then ultimately they crossed the Red Sea as God parted the waters and they walked through on dry ground. God led them to the land. He was leading them now to the land that he promised to Abraham. They began their journey. God miraculously provided for them with bread from heaven and water from a rock. After spying out the promised land, they didn't believe they could take it. They sent 12 spies and only two thought they could handle it. The other 10 were doubtful and for their lack of faith, God sent them wandering for 40 years. Moses led them every step of the way, even though they were a grumbling and complaining people. They were hard to live with. He, uh, Moses, went up on the mountain. He met with the Lord. He received the Lord's Ten Commandments. He brought the law of God to his people. This law was never meant to save them. It was actually meant to reveal to them their need for a Savior. And God gave them then a way of worship through sacrifice. To open a door for them to be, you know, temporarily made right with God again. And finally, as the wandering through the wilderness comes to an end, Moses dies. And that's where the book of Joshua begins. Moses was an incredible leader. He, he served uh, the Israelites as a prophet, as a mediator, as an intercessor. He He met with God face to face. He brought God's word to God's people. It's amazing, right? Well, then Moses dies and Joshua is appointed to fill his shoes. And these are some big shoes to fill. But here we see that it isn't the charisma. It isn't the personality or the skill of a leader that determines the success. It's the favor and presence of God. Look with me at the scriptures, if you will, in Joshua 1. And I just want to walk chapter through chapter before we really focus in on on one text. In chapter 1, the Lord is affirming Joshua as the next leader. He says to Joshua in verse 9, a very famous verse, Be strong and courageous. Don't be frightened or dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. With you, with you, with you. It means more than just the Lord is along for the ride. It means he is for you. He is with you. As long as Joshua humbled himself under God's rule and under God's word, God's favor would rest on him just as it did with Moses. Joshua could be strong, but not in his own strength. Joshua could be courageous, but not because he had the power to overcome Leading with real strength and real courage only comes from trusting the Lord. So from this chapter, how do you trust the Lord? Well, we're familiar with Joshua 1, 9, but the verse right before that makes very clear. We trust the Lord by trusting his word. Joshua 1, 8. Joshua specifically told to immerse himself in his Bible. Keep in mind, all he had of the scriptures is what Moses had written. But he's supposed to immerse himself in the scriptures. The Bible says, don't let the scripture depart from your mouth. That means speak the truth. Speak it, right? Meditate on it day and night. That means think it. And then he says, do everything that's written in it. 
So do it. Obey it. These are simple commands, simple truth. But the Lord is telling Joshua, if you want to be a strong and courageous leader, you better abide in my word and let my word abide in you. How will we know what to do? We soak in God's word. In chapter two, Joshua sends spies into Jericho. Much like he was sent into Jericho or into the promised land years before, he sends not 12 spies this time, just two. I think he had learned his lesson. The other 10 were worthless, right? So I'm just going to send two. He sends in the two spies to see what's going on there. They sneak into the city. They're spotted almost immediately as outsiders. They make an unlikely friend. As they're running from the leaders in Jericho, the militia, I suppose, that they find refuge and hospitality with a woman named Rahab. Rahab, we're told, is a prostitute, but she hides these spies in her home. She gives them safe refuge. Now think about the risk Rahab is taking here. She's committing treason against the king of Jericho. She knows that if she's caught aiding and abetting these spies, it'll cost her her life. But she's decided it would be better to die for the one true God than to live for this world. Now, that's a good truth, isn't it? She gives the spies a good plan to get safely back to Joshua to report what's going on. And she asks them to spare her life. When when your God takes our city, would you spare my life? Well, they agree and Rahab, if you remember, she hangs a scarlet cord out the window, like a, a red rope out the window so that her home would be signified. It would be the signal that tells the Israelite army, don't destroy the people in that home. For the Lord has shown his mercy to them. Mm. In chapter three, God parts the waters of the Jordan River. And the Israelites cross over. And we can't help but see the parallel here from God's leading the people of Israel through the Red Sea just 40 years prior. And now what God did for Moses, he's going to do for Joshua. He's proving to Joshua, I am with you. Just like I was with Moses, I'll be with you. You listen to me, you follow me, and I will work on your behalf. God puts his power on display to instill courage into his people. Surely God wanted them to know, I've done this before. I'll do it again. Now, I want you to notice one detail here in chapter three. The the waters of the Jordan did not move until the people put their feet in the water. There's something to be acknowledged here about the steps of faith, this faithful obedience, trusting God really before you see what it is he's going to do. You trust him enough to step into the water. God will work his mighty works, but not without their faithful steps of obedience. In chapter four, they've crossed through the Jordan and they set up stones as a memorial. They're remembering God's goodness. And Joshua knows this moment of crossing over the Jordan is massive. And he wants to ensure they do not forget it. Twelve stones, one for every tribe, is set up in the place where God led them across the Jordan. 
Listen, do you know this? That so much of faith that you need today is really about remembering what God did yesterday. Listen, you didn't hear what I said. The faith that you need for the challenges you face now and tomorrow. Much of it can be found in looking back at God's faithfulness in your past. How has God worked to prove himself faithful? Remember, remember. So many of you may be in a crisis of your faith right now. And what I want to ask you is where are the stones in your life? The markers of God's faithfulness to you. Many of you in our faith family may remember. uh, And we could probably talk about many stories. I'm, I'm sure there are so many stories, but I want us to remember together right now. A story that we lived together. October of 2020, the covid pandemic was in full swing. One of our brothers, Steve, got very sick. You guys remember this? He was doing okay at home, but not well. Things spiraled out of control very quickly. Put Steve in the hospital November the 1st. And within just a few days, he had to be put on a vent. A few weeks of being on a vent and that Sunday, Steve called or Tanya called me. And Steve and I had FaceTimed while he was in the hospital. We had talked over the phone. We had prayed together. He was struggling. But that Sunday morning, Tanya called and she said, Justin, it's serious. The doctors have just told me we've got 24 hours. If he doesn't make a turn, this is life or death. These next 24 hours are critical. That Sunday, we we gathered as a church and struggled through worship. I struggled through a sermon. We got to the end of our time gathering and I just invited you to join me for prayer right here at this little prayer station. Anybody remember what I'm talking about? Anybody? We just came down together and gathered here. I got Tanya on FaceTime and we just cried. We wept with her. We cried aloud to God. We were scattered through the room because we were trying to do, you know, the, the social distancing thing. But we, we cried out aloud to our God for healing, for a miracle, right? And God heard our cries. And God healed our brother. And he is with us today. Steve, will you and Tanya, would y'all come up here for a minute? Let us just celebrate a stone, a marker of faith.
shift. And she came in and she didn't know that they had taken me off the bench. She didn't know that God had wiped my lungs clean. And she just broke down and started praising. And Tanya had told her that, that one of my favorite songs was Do It Again. And just like you just said, Justin, I mean, God tells us, I've done it before and I'll do it again. That's right. And so she brought her phone over and played that song and held my hands up. And together we just praised God. Because he will do it again. Yes. Yeah. And so um, I'm going to leave this over at the prayer station. I want this to be, it to be a reminder that when you come up there to pray, maybe you think back to this miracle. Or you think back to, these are God's promises. He is faithful. He never fails. Never fails. And he'll do it again for you in your life. Faith often looks back in order to look ahead. If we remember God's goodness and God's faithfulness, it's, it's in those moments in the valley when we need to look back to previous mountaintops. We need to look back to where the Lord has been faithful before. It's the reason when we gather, we remember the gospel. We rehearse the gospel and we rest in the gospel. That's chapter four. In chapter five, the people of Israel have crossed over the Jordan and the signs of the covenant are reestablished. This is beautiful. They've seen God be faithful. And the first thing they want to do after setting up stones is to remind themselves that we serve a covenant God, a God who makes promises and keeps promises. We are his covenant people. So they circumcise the men. This is a, an outward physical sign of an inward relationship with a covenant God. It's a mark that I belong to him. In the same way, today we baptize in the New Testament. Baptism is the parallel of the Old Testament marker of circumcision. Well, after they circumcised the men, they observed the Passover. This was... A reminder of what God had done in Egypt, that God has, had delivered us from Pharaoh by um, protecting us with the Passover lamb. We shed his blood. We put his blood on the doorpost. And when the death angel passed over us, we were saved. And that ultimately is what broke the bonds of the Pharaoh. And they were set free. So these, again, are markers of the faithfulness of a covenant keeping God, today we still observe Passover, the Lord's Supper is our time to gather to recognize the lamb sacrifice, not the lamb of Egypt that was sacrificed, but the lamb of God who was sacrificed for the sins of the world. We're not set free from slavery in Egypt, but we're set free from slavery to our sin. In chapter six, this is one of the most famous stories in all the Bible. The Lord gives the battle plan for taking the city of Jericho. And it's an unconventional plan to say the least, right? The priests take the Ark of the Covenant 
They begin this march around the city. The other priests have the shofar. That's a a ram's horn, a trumpet-like. And they're sounding, blowing the shofar. The people march following the, the representation of the presence of God. The people march all the way around the city without a word, silently. There's so much we could say about this. But these were God's instructions. And on the seventh day, the people marched around the city seven times. The first six times in silence. And on the seventh time, when the trumpet would sound, the people shouted with a mighty shout. And the Lord said, when you shout, the walls will come down. And that's exactly what happened. The great walls of a great city came crumbling down at the shout of God's people. Now, this plan was designed really for one purpose. So that no soldier could say, look what I did. I'm a great hero. Could you imagine? You guys just thought you were shouting loud. Well, I belted out those bricks just went to crumbling. Ridiculous. No soldier would take any claim of victory. And what we learn from the Lord is he's setting up a battle plan for his people that says, listen, you go to battle and I'll bring the victory. Victory belongs solely to God. Now think about your salvation. It's set up exactly the same way in Ephesians 2. We're reminded That we are saved by grace through faith. That not of yourselves so that no one can boast. God claims the victory over your life in a way that you have no room for taking his credit. Now just as it is with Jericho, we have hope that God will conquer and We will enter into his rest. So now we've summarized six chapters really quickly, really quickly. We've seen principles from what the Lord has done and what um, Joshua did to lead the people and Jericho fell before them. But I want us to focus in on a passage that's buried into this story that's probably a bit more obscure, but no less important. Would you turn with me to Joshua chapter five? And as you turn there, I want to ask you this. Who gave the battle plan to Joshua? Who gave him the plan? Joshua 6 says it's the Lord. But I want us to read from Joshua 5, verses 13 through 15. And uh, would you stand with me? As we read in honor of God's word. Verse 13, when Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked and behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, are you for us or for our adversaries? And he said, no, but I am the commander of the army of the Lord. And now I have come. Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped and said to him, What does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, 
Take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you're standing is holy. And Joshua did so. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for keeping your promises. Thank you for being faithful to us. Thank you for healing our brother Steve. We give you all the praise. We don't belittle it. We call it a miracle. Thank you, God, for miracles. Help us today as we look to your word to keep it on our lips, to meditate on it day and night, to do all that it says. We want to live faithfully to you as you're building your kingdom. Help us, Lord, to see Christ in these pages. Renew our hope and joy as we remember and rehearse and rest in the gospel today. In Jesus' name and for his glory alone. Amen. So obviously these opening chapters, you can be seated. These opening chapters show us that Joshua is meant to point us to the better Yeshua, Jesus. He's a pointer to Christ. We have something remarkable buried in this text. Joshua is just outside the city of Jericho. He's by himself. I suppose maybe he went for a walk. He's A leader, he's anxious about the battle that's coming up. He's needing to hear from God. Maybe he's just wandering about. He gets near the city. And he looks up and he sees a man standing there. Maybe Joshua was rehearsing the words of God. Be strong and courageous. Don't be afraid or dismayed. The Lord your God is with you. And he sort of looks up. Oh, hey. He confronts this mighty warrior of a man with a question. Are you for us or for them? (laughs) Now, I don't know how that might have sounded. But I imagine there was some trepidation. Please say for us. Please say for us. (laughs) Right? But don't you love this warrior's answer? He responds to Joshua with simply, no. (laughs) Right? It's laughable. No. I'm the commander of the army of the Lord. And now I have come. That's ominous, isn't it? Who is this mysterious commander? Oh, church, I believe it's Christ. It's Christ. Remember, Jesus wasn't just born in Bethlehem. He came. He came to Bethlehem, which means he has existed before his birth. He is the eternally existing son of God. And we've seen Jesus not in the flesh. That's the incarnation. That's his birth. We've seen Jesus in different forms, in different manifestations, in different ways, all the way as we've studied the scriptures up to this point. We've acknowledged that has to be Christ. And here, I believe it's the same. He's intricately involved in the story of redemption as it's unfolding. That creation John 1 says nothing was made that was made without him. So Jesus was there. At the moment, Abraham raised his knife to kill his son, Isaac. The voice said, Abraham, stop. That was Christ. Genesis 22. Jacob 
wrestled with the Lord and wouldn't let go until the man blessed him in Genesis 32. It was Christ who renamed him Israel and gave him a limp. At the burning bush, when Moses was called to Egypt to deliver God's people, the Bible says it was the angel of the Lord who spoke to him from the bush. Now, that's the Old Testament's way of referring to Christ when you read the angel of the Lord. And I could show you many, many texts where the angel of the Lord says things specifically on behalf of God, like, I am the God of your father, Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. How does an angel say those things unless he is God and he is the son of God? So this is referring to the pre-incarnate Christ. The New Testament affirms what we're saying. The book of Jude, Jude verse 5, specifically says that it was Jesus who saved God's people from Egypt and Jesus who destroyed the Egyptians in the Red Sea. Jude says that was Jesus. In 1 Corinthians 10, Paul says it was Christ that came in the bread from heaven. And it was Christ who was the rock who Moses struck and the water came forth. That was Christ in the Old Testament. All of these and many others are called theophanies. That's the theological term is a theophany. If you want the definition, write this down. A theophany simply is when God appears to men. And specifically here in this text, we have what's called a Christophany. When it's Christ himself. Joshua has an encounter similar to the burning bush moment with Moses. I mean, this commander of the Lord's army actually says the exact same words that he said at the burning bush in Exodus 3, right? Take off your shoes. This is holy ground. Now think about it for a minute. Joshua falls on his face in worship. Of a man with a sword. If this is just an angel or just a person representing God, he would have said, get up, get up, man. Don't worship me. But instead, he presses Joshua's worship even more intimately and more reverentially and says, take off your shoes. This is holy ground. This is Christ and Joshua has an experience with the Lord. And here's how he responds. And this is beautiful. He responds in awe. Joshua responds in awe. He falls on his face in worship. It's like Isaiah six kind of moment where Isaiah encounters the presence of the Lord. He falls on his face. Woe is me. Right. This is a similar moment. This expression of worship is when you push yourself downward It's a bowing in front of a superior. Joshua is in awe. He gives his allegiance. Allegiance. Joshua calls this man my Lord. And he calls himself your servant. In these titles, he's posturing himself as a willing servant to this man. He's giving his allegiance. And thirdly, he's making himself available. Available. He says, tell me. What you want me to do. Suddenly Joshua. 
the great leader who's just led the people through the through the Jordan River. Right. Great leader of Israel has met his superior ranked commander. And he knows I'm no longer in charge. Just give me my orders. Think how revolutionary this would be for us if we lived our lives this way. In awe of Christ. Full and total allegiance to Christ. Available to Christ. Whatever you say, Lord, I'll do. I want to just look back for a moment at Joshua's first question. Lord, I'm listening. What do you want to say to me today? But his first question was this. Are you for us or for our enemies? And this commander responds, no. Now, this is huge. We need to really hear this. There are bigger things happening than just you versus them. The commander of the Lord's army, Christ himself, says, I'm actually not on your team or on their team. I've come to do the work of the Lord. I'm on his team. And here's the question. Are you with me? I'm reminded of Ephesians 6, where Paul teaches us that our battle is not against flesh and blood, but powers and principalities. So fellow soldier, listen. Don't get caught up thinking you're fighting against him or her or them or that. That's not the battles we're waging war in. Lift your eyes and see the true battle and the true warrior, the true Christ. See him. Join him. Know the real enemy and join the real fight. This battle with Joshua isn't about political ambitions. It isn't about getting what they have. It isn't about being right or them being wrong. This battle was about God being faithful to his people and God judging the sins of the wicked. So I want to give you three truths about Christ very quickly. These are huge. Don't miss these three truths that we see about Christ, our commander in this text. Christ The commander fulfills God's promise. He fulfills God's promise. And we've already spent some time here, so I'll be quick. Over 400 years earlier, God promised to Abraham to give this land back to his people. There's one little phrase that maybe you missed in Genesis 15, 16. The Lord says they'll come back here in the fourth generation. And then he says this. For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet Complete. Now, what does that mean? The iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. God is promising to to return this land to his people. And those who have come to dwell in it, the Amorites, and here we have those in Jericho, they're all included here. They've taken the land and their iniquity is great before the Lord. But the Lord is patient, isn't he? We'll come to this in a moment. Here, I just want you to see the commander, Christ, keeps his promises. 
2 Corinthians 1.20 says all the promises of God find their yes in Jesus. It's a good verse. Second truth. Christ our commander executes God's judgment. Executes God's judgment. We could spend a long time here, but I want to try to move quickly. Jericho, the city, was, quote, devoted to destruction. Take your Bible and look with me at Joshua 6, verses 20 and 21. Joshua 6, verse 20 and 21. This is as the people march, the trumpets sound, and verse 20. So the people shouted and the trumpets were blown. As, the, as soon as the people heard the sound of the trumpet, the people shouted a great shout. And the wall fell down flat so that the people went up into the city. Every man straight before him and they captured the city. Verse 21. Then they devoted all in the city to destruction, both men and women, young and old. Oxen, sheep, and donkeys with the edge of the sword. We could continue reading how after they rescued Rahab, they burned it all. A lot of people struggle reading these passages of Scripture. I mean, is God calling for conquest? Is He calling for holy war? Is He calling for the killing of whole cities? What is God doing here? And He's actually very clear in the Scripture what He's doing. He's judging the wicked. In Deuteronomy 9, verse 4, it says, When the Lord your God has driven them out from before you, don't say in your heart, it's because of my righteousness the Lord has brought me to possess this land. Rather, the Lord is driving these nations before you because of their what? Wickedness. In Leviticus 18, God is warning the Israelites not to conform to the wickedness of the peoples that had occupied the land. Leviticus 18 may not read all of this, but just listen. God's saying, hey, when you take the land, don't become like the people that are there. You shall not give any of your offspring, your children, your babies to offer them to Moloch, an idol that they would sacrifice their babies to. Nor shall you profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. You shall not lie with a male as one lies with a female. It's an abomination. Also, you shall not have intercourse with any animal to be defiled with it. Nor shall any woman stand before an animal to mate with it. It's a perversion. And he goes on and on and on with this list, right? This is a list detailing just some of the iniquities of Jericho and the Amorites and the cities that God was going to give to his people. In Deuteronomy 18, the Lord furthers his warning by saying, when you enter the land, do not imitate the detestable things of those nations. We could continue to read. You know, archaeologists have found and have researched and studied and have found actually in the rubble of the walls of Jericho, all in the walls, the skeleton bones of babies. They built their cities on the sacrificed babies to a false god. The iniquity that 400 years God said was not completed was now completed. And God's judgment was devastatingly complete as well. The destruction of Jericho is a historical shadow. Listen, this is why this matters. Why why does the devastating demolition of a city 
years, thousands of years ago matter for us today? It matters because it's a shadow. It's a historical shadow of what is yet to come. On the great and terrible day that our commander Jesus Christ still returns. He will return with the sound of trumpets and a great shout. 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 and 17. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, we will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So we will always be with the Lord. Now, on that day, this is a, this is a beautiful celebration message that Paul's writing To the Thessalonians, don't be afraid when you die or when Christ comes. It's going to be a glorious day for us. But he's coming with the sound of a trumpet and a great shout. What's that remind you of? Jericho. It's meant to remind us of Jericho. Because for those who remain, who have persisted in unbelief and wickedness, there's a kind of destruction coming that would make the destruction of Jericho pale in comparison. Listen, Christ brings the judgment of God. The Bible says our God is merciful and gracious. He is slow to anger. We better not confuse the slowness, the patience of our God with indifference. He is calling all people to repent of sin, to surrender to Jesus Christ as Lord and then receive his mercy. And that takes me to our last truth. And this is beautiful. Church, I know I've been going a minute. I'm sorry. It's been a while since I've preached. Here we go. Last truth, and I'll be quick here, but don't, don't drop out yet. This is beautiful. Christ, our commander, saves with God's mercy. <laughs> this book, Joshua, portrays the beautiful, brutal judgment of God on Jericho. And yet, in the midst of... Of that, we see how God treats those who deserve judgment and yet cry out for mercy. Listen, God is coming. Christ is coming to judge, but he's being patient. And any who call out to him for mercy now will be saved. Rahab, the prostitute. And all her household, Joshua 6.25 tells us, all of them were saved. Why? Why were they saved? It wasn't because she was a nice lady. It was because she'd heard the fearful and awesome stories of the God of the Israelites. She was dreadfully afraid. Her heart melted in fear. And she believed. Look at, look at Joshua 2, 11. Quickly, look at it. Rahab's talking to the spies and she says, As soon as we heard it, our hearts melted. There was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God. Listen to this declaration of faith. He is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Oh, her heart melted in fear, but it turned to faith. When fear of God leads to faith in God, salvation from God is the result. In almost every mention in the Bible, Rahab is mentioned specifically as a prostitute. Why? Why do we keep bringing up that story? (laughs) 
Listen, the emphasis is not to make less of her, but to make much of the mercy of God. This woman didn't deserve his mercy. Neither do you. But God makes much of his mercy by saving a prostitute from a city devoted to destruction. It's beautiful how the commander of God's army brings God's mercy. Her shame has become a meaningful part of the story of God's glorious grace. Rahab was promised that her life would be spared. Anyone in her house. So guess what she did? Anyone in her house. She held on to the promise of God and said, I've got to get my family here. Her father, her mother, her brothers, her relatives. She packed that house full. She laid out her little red rope like Rapunzel. Laid that thing out. We can read in Joshua 6, 23. I love this. The young men who had been spies went in and brought out Rahab. Listen, her father, her mother, her brothers, and all who belonged to her. They brought out all her relatives, put them outside the camp of Israel. This woman who'd received incredible mercy from God had become a missionary for God. She said, I'm getting my people, get in my house, get under the promise of a merciful God. Let me finish here. The plot thickens. Rahab, who we think is an obscure person, mysteriously rescued from a city devoted to destruction, Rahab would eventually marry one of the spies that she had given safe harbor to. Did you know that? And she would have a son. And that boy's name would be Boaz. And Boaz would marry Ruth and they would have a son named Obed and Obed would have a son named Jesse and Jesse would have a son named King David. And King David is the lineage through which Jesus comes. Rahab was not an accident. She was the mission of the commander of the Lord's army. I'm rescuing that woman and through her I'm going to bring the Savior of the world. This is the work of our God. Jesus, Christ our commander, He fulfills all God's promises. He executes God's judgment. Make no mistake. And He saves with God's mercy.